morning we're, we're beginning a new series of sermons called Engage, in which we want to encourage one another to become intentional about engaging the needs of our neighbors. And by neighbors, uh, we mean the people around whom you live, work, play, or study. We believe that this is the only way in this culture that we're going to be able to move forward uh, the vision of City Church. In fact, I want to do something uh, throughout the series each time. I want to begin by reading our vision statement together. Let's read it. The vision of City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to explain in just a minute, in a few minutes, why we believe that in this culture, this is the only way we're going to move our vision forward, by engaging neighbors. But before I do that, uh, to kick this series off, I want to take you to a place in Scripture that I think will surprise you. I think it'll make you think I've lost my mind, because it won't seem at all applicable to you uh, or the topic at hand. Are you intrigued? Are you intrigued? (laughs) Good. Thank you. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the sixth of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 13. Just a little context about the Ten Commandments while you turn there in your Bibles. Uh, The Ten Commandments are an expression of the character of God. He gave them to Israel. Now listen to me about this. He gave them to Israel after he had saved them, after he had redeemed them. Uh, from Egypt. Now that's important because many people think that obedience to the law was the way Israel could be saved. They think it's the way that they're to be saved. It was not. God saved Israel before He ever gave them the law. Before they ever obeyed the law, He saved them. The Ten Commandments showed Israel how to live intimately with God after He had saved them. And they also showed them how to live and relate to one another as a radically unique nation in comparison to all of the other nations around them. Now let's look at the sixth of the Ten Commandments uh, specifically. Verse 13, it's very short. It says, you shall not commit murder. It's pretty short, isn't it? In fact, it's even shorter in Hebrew. No murder is how the Hebrew reads. Uh, Just two words. Now, somebody said to me this morning, one of the tech guys this morning, when, he, when I, said, I came in, I, I just said, you know, you shall not commit murder. He said, well, that's a pretty good rule of thumb to live by. And maybe that's what you're thinking right now. Yeah, that's a pretty good rule of thumb to live by, Jeff. But what does this have to do with engaging my neighbor? Well, here's how I'm going to get to that this morning. I want to talk for a moment. I think it's important that we talk about the letter of the commandment. You know, like the letter of the commandment. Then we're going to talk about the spirit of the commandment. And then I want to talk about an application of the commandment that is relative to city church. So the letter, the spirit of the commandment, and then an application of the commandment. We'll start with the letter of the commandment. The word for murder in this verse is a word that refers to both premeditated murder as well as what we would refer to legally in America as voluntary manslaughter, in which there might not have been premeditation, but it was still a voluntary act of killing another human being. Now, I do need to make a couple of points here. Number one, this doesn't say anything uh, about capital punishment. It doesn't say anything about the idea of just war. Now, there might be passages in the New Testament that you would go to that that would shape your thinking on that, but Exodus 20, chapter 13 is not referring to either one of those things. In addition, if you have a King James version of the Bible, let me just tell you that the King James really muddies this verse because it says that thou shalt not kill. That's not what this verse says. This verse is not talking about killing. 
This verse is talking about premeditated murder or voluntary manslaughter, okay? So it's very different than just saying, thou shall not kill. Now, I think it's a very fair question to ask in our secular culture, why? Why not murder? I mean, because frankly, if all we are is a random assortment of dirt and chemicals, if that's all we are as people, as human beings, just dirt and chemicals, if that's all we are, why is it wrong to murder? And frankly, there is no good reason that you can offer for why murder is wrong if that's your view of human life, other than that it's merely your opinion that it's wrong. And you might even say, well, it's not just my opinion, it's the opinion of most people in our culture. The problem is that if you're arguing for the determination of right and wrong on the basis of what the majority says is right and wrong, you'll have a tough time explaining why Hitler uh, was wrong. Like the only way to explain why murder is absolutely wrong is to have a transcendent God who has created human life. And in fact, the why behind the sixth commandment is really twofold. First, God is the author of life. So as such, he's the only one who has the authority to end a life. So he's the author of life. And then the second why behind this commandment is that man is made in the image of God. And so because of that, life is sacred. We're not just uh, dirt and chemicals. Uh, Life is sacred because we're made in the image of God. Now, God speaks about this in a number of different places. Here's one I want to show you this morning. It's found in Genesis chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it up on the screen. You might want to make a note of it, though. It says, uh, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, or for in the image of God has God made mankind. Now that verse in the context around it could make up a sermon of its own. I don't have time to explain all that's involved there. But the point is very clear. Human life is precious. Every human life is sacred. It's of infinite value. Because man has been made in God's image. Unlike animals, unlike plants, unlike fish, birds, any other living creature on the earth, man alone is the crown jewel of God's creation. And the purpose of a passage like Genesis 9, along with the sixth commandment, is to get you to feel the infinite value of human life, to get you to feel the weight of your neighbor's glory, the weight of their value. So this is the why Behind the sixth commandment, we are to so value human life, our own life, other people's lives, that we would never have the audacity to murder another human being because they are made in the image of God. Now, again, at this point, I suspect that most of us in the room would agree with the rightness of this command. Most of us have probably refrained from murdering anyone. I'm going to assume that. But this is where I want to move from the letter of the commandment to the spirit of the commandment, the spirit of the commandment. In the New Testament, Jesus presses this particular commandment, the sixth commandment. He presses this commandment and some of the others back to the thoughts and the intentions that a person has before they ever physically commit a murder. And interestingly, by doing so, uh, he shows us that there's a shorter distance between us and murderers than we think. So like he says uh, in Matthew 15, he's talking about the Sixth Commandment. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder. Uh, Adultery, some of the other commandments, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. 
out of the heart. Uh, this past week, uh, I went on to Google and I typed in the words murder capital of the world. The Wall Street Journal, uh, on the basis of United Nations data, located the murder capital of the world in uh, Latin America. Listen to this. In San Pedro uh, Sula, uh, in Honduras, there are more than 1,200 killings per year. Uh, that's a lot. In, in Acapulco, there are 142 murders for every 100,000 people who live there. And the list goes on. Uh, in, uh, murders in Latin America. But I want you to understand something. That Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15 that the murder capital of the world is the human heart. It's the human heart. Because murder, you see, doesn't come out of nowhere. It has a root. And its root is the human heart. It lies instinctively in each of us. Wherever there is a beating heart, there is murder. Now, I just want to give you an example of this. Recently, I was reading about a particular person in our culture who is near death and who's been very hard on Christianity. Uh, they've attacked Christianity. They've attacked Christians at every point. Now, I didn't know this person was near death, but when I read it, my first instinctive thought was good. And I've got to tell you something. I was shocked and appalled by how quickly and instinctively that thought came to my mind. You see, that's how instinctive, you see, that murder is to us. Jesus says more about this in his Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But but he says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. These two words, Raha and fool, were two of the most contemptuous and dehumanizing words a person could use in that culture. Now, in our culture, we have other words, right, that we would use to dehumanize a person to express contempt. But these are the two of the most contemptuous and dehumanizing in that culture. In fact, the word racha is a word that's derived from the root of a word that means spit. In other words, it's a way of saying, you nobody, you non-person, you empty, worthless person, you empty, worthless, non-person. The word translated fool is the Greek word moros, from which we get our word moron. Two of the most contemptuous words that you could use to describe someone in the first century. And you say, well, okay, I get it, come on, I get it. This is it's very not, not very nice to call people words like that, but murder? Seriously? Well, here's why Jesus says that this violates the spirit of the sixth commandment. When you call someone a name like this, you do so. Why do you do it? You do so because you hope the person believes it. So you, you, don't, you don't just say it to say it. You hope they believe it. Because if they do believe it, well, you've succeeded in damaging them very, very deeply. When you say something like that, you hope to assassinate their sense of value, their sense of dignity as a human being, their sense of worth, their sense of glory. I mean, I mean, think about it. That's how you deface a masterpiece, isn't it? If you wanted to uh, deface a, a masterpiece painting, for instance, you would just go into the museum and you would take a, a pen or, or something uh, and you just scrawl something across it so that people can't, any, they can't see it anymore in the way that it was supposed to be seen. 
And you see, this is what happens when you speak to people in such contemptuous terms as racha or fool or whatever terms that you would use, that you have used, that I have used, that we use in our culture today. If they believe you, they no longer see themselves as glorious creations, masterpieces made in the image of God. If you're counting, I see at least... Three different ways that Jesus says you can murder another person in this passage. One, obviously, is with your hand. The second, though, notice, is with your tongue. You speak about them in ways that express your contempt. And then the third, and this is the one that's fascinating to me this morning, is neglect. Neglect. Specifically, neglecting to value someone as a person made in the image of God. Neglecting to care about them, their needs, their interests. Neglecting to see the infinite value of their lives. Seeing them as a waste of your time. Treating them as if they don't matter. As if your life is more important. Your needs more important. Ignoring them. There's a very famous quote by C.S. Lewis that some of you may have, uh, you may have heard this one before. Or you may have read it before. It comes from his book, The Weight of Glory. And he writes this. It's a little long, but it's worth it. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And the question this morning is, do you feel the weight of your neighbor's glory? Like the people around whom you live, work, play, study. And, and, and do those same people, do they feel valued by you, by the way that you treat them, by the way that you regard them? by the interest that you take in them? Or do they feel neglected uh, by you? There's still another passage in the New Testament in which Jesus says, uh, he says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do, to one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And in a sense, what God is saying is that if you don't treat other people properly, if you neglect them, he's saying, I see that as an assault on me because my image is on them. Another way to look at that passage is to understand that Jesus is telling you in that passage that he lives in your neighborhood, that he works at your workplace, that he exercises at your club, that he attends your school. 
Jesus is the lonely kid who just needs someone to play catch with him. He's the elderly widow who's dying of loneliness. He is that young couple who would give anything for a person with a healthy marriage who's been through tough stuff to come over and to say to them, you know what, this is tough. We've been through it too. You can make it through it. We'll help you. Jesus is the Muslim man that you work with or the atheist that you work with or the liberal that you work with or the conservative you work with. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. And I want to go back to that quote from C.S. Lewis, and I want to just rest for a moment on one specific line, and I want to see if we can let this sink in for just a moment. He says, all day long, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. And of course, the destinations to which he's referring are heaven and hell. As we go on throughout this series, we're going to see confirmed again and again the idea that we're accountable for the life of our fellow man. Jesus told us over and over again that we're to love people, to serve people, because the Christian view is that there's no such thing as an unimportant person. In fact, Jesus takes this so seriously that he makes the point that the spirit of the sixth commandment is violated when we neglect another person who is made in the image of God. Okay. The letter of the commandment. Uh, we've talked about the spirit of the commandment. And now I just want to move to the end here. I want to move to an application of the commandment. And I want to tell you that I think this is a series that could, if we take it seriously, it could be one of those moments in the life of our church that we look back on years from now and say, that was the moment that City Church really began to take the vision statement on that wall seriously. Some time ago, I was, at a, uh, I was at a gathering of local pastors and the speaker, someone from out of town, which of course makes him an expert, expert. Uh, <laughs> he, spoke, uh, he spoke about how the platform business model is changing traditional business models today. And you probably know what I mean by that, uh, but for instance, you know, Uber is a transportation company that doesn't own a car, Airbnb is in the hospitality business but doesn't own a single building, hotel room, or vacation property. You probably know about the platform business model. It wasn't my first uh, awareness of it either, but I'm a little embarrassed to admit that it was the first time as he was speaking that I had ever really thought of the church as a platform organization. In fact, the first platform organization in human history. And what I mean by this is that, is that like Uber or Airbnb, City Church can be in as many neighborhoods as there are represented here without having to own a church building in any of those neighborhoods. We can be in every workplace without having to build a chapel there. We can be in every club. We can be in every school represented here. And I, I, you know, I don't like to compare the church to business, but if it helps you to think of it this way, this building is the home office, but you are the actual assets of the organization. And imagine what might happen if the 700 or so people who call City Church home right now, imagine what would happen if all of them were to unleash their creativity, if all of them were to pray for God to give them ideas about how they could serve their neighbors, the people around whom they live, work, play, and study. Imagine what might happen. You see, it's become very clear to me that this is the only way the gospel is going to spread in America, is if we do that, if we begin to engage our neighbors. There was a time in America 
when evangelists could hold crusades in churches and stadiums and, and unbelieving people would go to those churches or those crusades, they would maybe listen to them on the radio, they would even watch them on television, and many people would even come to believe in Jesus right then uh, at the moment. And, and maybe some of you did that. Uh, maybe some of you uh, were a product of one of those crusades. It's fantastic. But it doesn't work that way any longer in America. Today, we largely remain in our own echo chambers. We isolate ourselves from exposure to ideas that we don't agree with. We use our own worldviews, our ideologies, our political perspectives as litmus tests to determine who we friend, who we will follow, who we listen to, who we expose ourselves to, and who we unfollow, and who we exclude, and who we unfriend. We get very hard-hearted toward people with whom we disagree because we reduce them down to a single dimension, their ideology. And if they agree with me ideologically, they're right. If not, they're wrong. So if a person has developed the opinion that Christianity is bad, as many people have today, they are not going to expose themselves to it. They're not going to read about it. They're not going to research it. They're not going to show up at a crusade or a church with an open mind to learn about it as people once might have in the history of America. It's not going to happen anymore. But I do wonder how many hearts might be softened to the message of the gospel if the people of City Church would begin to personally engage with the needs of their neighbors, people around whom we live, work, play, and study. If we were to make it our mission to prioritize their needs and meet their needs, not in a martyr-like manner, not for attention, not because we, uh, but, but because we recognize that these people are made in the image of God. I feel convinced that this is the only way the gospel is going to go forward in America and the only way City Church is going to move our vision forward. Because it's when, only when people are forced to see Christianity multidimensionally, not just as an ideology, but only when they see it acted out, lived out, in the form of servanthood to other people. It's the only place, it's the only way they will ever believe the gospel. People need to experience the gospel, not just in one-dimensional words, but in 3D, or 4D, or whatever D we're up to now te technologically these days. Here, here, here's what I'm saying to you. Don't wait for the staff at City Church to put on some program to do our vision. Don't ask me or anyone else, what are we doing to accomplish our vision? Because the answer is going to be, we're doing only as much as you are doing. The days of what is called attractional ministry, getting people who don't believe to come to church, those days are over. The only way the gospel goes forward in this culture is by engaging our neighbors multidimensionally. It's the only way. Now, if you feel overwhelmed by this, like if you're thinking, well, where in the world will I get the time? Where will I get the energy to do this? Uh, you need to know that I'm not asking you to go out and serve people. It's really not what I'm asking you. It may sound like that, but that's not what I'm asking you to do. And the reason is you don't have to be a Christian to serve people. I'm asking you to allow Jesus to turn you into a servant. Now, what's the difference between serving people and being a servant? One is an obligation that I do for my glory. The other is a privilege that I, do, that I get to do to convey to another person their glory. That's the difference. And you might be asking, well, how in the world do I get to the place that 
serving people isn't about me, but it's about, it's about them. And the answer is, you have to go to Jesus, who the Bible says is the image of the invisible God. You have to meet him and have the image of God restored in you. Because on the cross, Jesus, the masterpiece of God, was defaced and defamed. And he allowed himself to be so because of the value that his father placed on you and me, even though we were God's enemies at the time. And you see, once we meet Christ on the cross, the image of God begins to be restored in us, and it makes you capable of understanding the profound value of other people who are created in the image of God. What happens is he begins to... Well, look at the word on our vision statement. He begins to... What does it say? He begins to transform you. Transform you. By the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just into a person who serves people, but into a servant. Like him. Who, as Hebrews says, listen to this. Hebrews says that it was for the joy that was set before Christ that he endured the cross. He wasn't just serving people. He, he was a servant, not doing something for his glory, but doing something to convey glory to people who are made in the image of God. It's for the joy that was set before him that he did that. Uh, some of you have heard me tell this story before. Most of you have not. Many years ago, in the very first church that I pastored, there was a man in our church who who left his wife and uh, declared himself to be gay and uh, left his family, and he took on a number of uh, gay lovers. It caused enormous heartache, as you can imagine, to his wife and to his children, to many of his friends uh, within the church. Uh, Sometime later, this man uh, contracted AIDS and was dying alone in a hospital room. This was back during the time that AIDS wasn't well understood. It was spreading rapidly among gay men across the world. Uh, And because AIDS wasn't understood well, there was a great deal of misinformation and fear about how you could catch AIDS. An elder in my church, uh, a a successful businessman, who had been a close friend of this man, learned about his situation, and he went to the man's hospital room. And he sat with him in his dying days. And when this man would vomit, this elder uh, would hold the bedpan and would wipe the vomit off of his face. And again, please understand, this is in the days when it was believed that any bodily fluid from a person with AIDS would infect you. You have to ask the question, why would he do something like that? Why would he sacrifice his own well-being like that? Where Where did a successful businessman find the time to do something like that? He did it because he had been transformed by Jesus into a servant. And being transformed into a servant changes, it changes how you use your time. It changes how you view money. It changed how he saw this man. He understood that even a frail man who had once caused enormous pain in many people's lives, dying of AIDS, so thin his bones were sticking out, sores all over his body, vomiting into a bedpan, he understood that this man carried the image of God. And I want to tell you that that's how the gospel, and that's the only way the gospel is going to go forward in our culture. It's by the people of God 
allowing Jesus Christ to transform them into servants. Likely, it's not going to mean anything so dramatic for you as it did for that elder. Maybe, maybe it's mowing someone's yard. Maybe it's cooking someone a dinner. Maybe it's just listening to someone. But the gospel is only going to go forward when you allow Christ to transform you into a servant of people. Because when you see Christ on the cross, the image of God being defaced on the cross and doing it out of joy because he wanted to convey your glory, because he wanted to rescue you, it changes, it changes you from someone who just serves into a servant like Christ. Next week, we're going to unveil something very exciting that's going to give us the chance to see the impact that we're having in our community by engaging with our neighbor's needs. But today, would you just ask God to give you a sense of your neighbor's glory, their weightiness, their, their value? Would you just ask God to give you a sense of that? The people around whom you live, work, play, and study, would you ask him to make you aware of their needs and how you might meet them? Would you ask him to transform you into a servant, not just a person who serves, but into a servant? Would you do that just today? That's, let's just start there today. And next week, we're going to see something really exciting that I think you're going to be excited about. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? This idea that we are created in the image of God, that the people around us are created in the image of God, that they carry value. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, in some ways is too much for us to get our head, heads around. Lord, we pray that today, that through the power of your Spirit, that you might bring people to mind, people that we work with, live with, study with, play with. You would bring them to our minds and that in a new way, that we would begin to recognize their value as human beings. Well, they might be friends, they might be enemies. They might be just simply people that live next to us that we really don't know. It might be somebody who works with us. Lord, would you give us a sense of their value as people? Lord, would you give us, uh, just give us a sense of creativity about how to meet their needs? Would you highlight their needs to us? Lord, most of all, would you transform us into servants? Transform us into servants who, like you, serve people not for our own glory, but for the joy that is set before us, that we would be able to convey the glory that they carry as people created in the image of God through our servanthood. And we pray these things now, Lord Jesus, in your name.